Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis. This is the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging gospel with a changing culture. I'm Eric Sintel, and in this episode, I present the second part in our series on racism and systemic racism and how the church can repent of its uh, complicity as well as strive to uh, achieve racial reconciliation. And in this episode, I'm talking with Joe and Drew of the podcast Joe uh, Crisis of Faith with Joe and Drew. Um, Joe is a theologian and Drew is a pastor. I'm going to break this conversation up into two different episodes, so there will be a third part to this series. Um, and so about, you know, for most of this conversation, Joe and Drew and I are going to focus on kind of describing the problem with three white guys talking about racism. Um, and then talking about how we can manage or navigate that problem in a responsible way. Um, and then the third part will the third part will be focused on uh, some of the actionable steps that we think we could take as churches and as individuals. If you have not listened to the first episode in this three-part series, uh, which is titled Peanut Butter and dot dot dot, um, you absolutely must pause this. Go back and listen to that other episode first because I define a lot of different terms that Joe and Drew and I kind of just throw around and, and use and take for granted that other people know what we're talking about and what we mean by that. Um, and we often mean something very specific that is not what most people mean when they use those phrases. We've done a lot of reading and listening and trying to learn from others and racial justice advocates and experts and we use a lot of the terms that they use within that bubble, within that community, and mean very specific things by them. Um, and then outside of that bubble, outside of that community, people usually mean something different by some of those terms. And so you absolutely need to stop this episode and go back and listen to peanut butter and dot, dot, dot to get some really important definitions and perspective in order to understand where we're coming from in this conversation. Uh, so let's get to the interview. Well, thank you, uh, Joe and Drew, for coming back on the podcast. You are our first return guest or return interview. Hey, all right. Hi. <laughs> yeah, and so one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk with you again is uh, when we talked before, at the very end, um, you know, Joe mentioned that he thought that the church needed to um, repent of its complicity in racism. And I was like, that's a great point that we need to talk about for another hour but i've already talked it at you for over an hour now um and so i'm, I'm thrilled that you're willing to come back on and i want to start our conversation by acknowledging that we are three white guys <laughs> talking yeah, about that's important yeah we're three white guys talking about racism today um and and I want to acknowledge, you know, that obviously there are limitations to that. You know, we have not experienced racism or systemic racism or prejudice in anything like other people have. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't think that we as white people in general um, should burden our black and brown brothers and sisters with the entire responsibility of talking about racism. Um, yeah. you know, we can educate ourselves, read books, listen to talks by um, African-Americans, by Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans, and other um, groups that have uh, felt the effects of racism. And we can try to be informed in what we're talking about. And we 
can and should talk about those things and at the same time acknowledge the limitations uh, that we have from our perspective and our upbringing. Um, so I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that and lay the groundwork. Um, and so I don't really have any questions prepared. I thought we could just maybe, um, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts about what you think um, it would look like for the church to repent of its complicity in systemic racism and then also, um, you know, what, what that might look like and how we might bring that about. Yeah, well, thanks for saying yeah. that. Because um, I think that's really important that, you know, there's a, there's a delicate balance that we as white folks need to strike in terms of, um, you know, we have a responsibility, we in the church especially have a, have a responsibility to name our complicity uh to become aware um and to begin to um divest ourselves of some privilege and and really think about what it means to um work toward ending systemic racism and we also need to as much as possible decenter our own voices and uh put people of color at the at the center of this conversation so uh, it's just, you know, I, I appreciate that you just named that up front. That's a that's a space that we're trying to figure out how to walk, and we might be screwing it up right now just by having this conversation, but we're <laughs> here we are. Sure. But at least we said that we might, we might be doing that up front. That, that helps it a lot. And Joe and I even talked yesterday just kind of prepping a little bit for this and trying to be, you know, ready for it. And that, that was one of the things that came up and said, I see the value in this. I also see the flaws in this. Um so it's, it's good that we're starting there and acknowledging that. Absolutely. Yeah, it is really tricky, you know, to, to say on the one hand, I, I don't want to just leave this burden or this responsibility entirely up to other people um, or people of color. And then at the same time, try to decenter our perspective, you know, and decenter our voices and rather not not because we can't or shouldn't say anything, but because we want to create the space for other people to be centered and, and their perspectives and their voices to come to the forefront. Um, and so this, you know, on a little bit of a tangent, um, but I think it illustrates kind of why we're sitting here doing this. Um, so at one point I realized, okay, so far in this podcast, I've, I've interviewed a bunch of um, other straight cisgender white guys in their 30s. You know, and I was like, I really need to diversify this podcast. Like, I want to center other voices and, and add some diversity here. You know, when I ask men to come on the podcast, <laughs> men are like, sure, go, I'll, I'll come on. And when I ask women, it's like, I don't know. I'm kind of uncertain. You know, I don't know if I really have anything valuable to contribute. And there's a lot more hesitancy. Um, if not outright, I just don't want to do it. Um, and, you know, and so there's some research showing, you know, if men are like minimally qualified for a job, they will apply for it. Whereas women have typically generally feel like they have to be maximally qualified or, or else they won't apply at all. And so it's just that's something that's really struck me in the course of the last year of, or year and a half working on this podcast is the difference in reaching out to men versus women. And then, you know, similarly, I, I have reached out to some people of color about talking about this topic. And, um, and, and that's kind of tricky too. It's like, you know, I thought about reaching out to one person and I'm like, but it's not, 
you know, that person's responsibility to educate other people about racism, you know, like, I don't want to impose on that person, like, hey, come educate us about racism. But then this other person had been um, posting to social media with that purpose. And so I felt more comfortable asking that person who had already put himself out there to talk about it. And that person, I think, was just too busy, ultimately. Um, or maybe too exhausted. It's like, look, I'm doing this work in all these other spaces already. I just don't have it in me to come to this podcast too. Um, I'm speculating there, um, but I want to acknowledge that that happens. You know, people get exhausted. Yeah. So here we find this ourselves. Be, you know. I think some of what you're saying, Eric, is really acknowledging a, a, an issue that needs brought up, like that. Uh, that in order for a woman to come on to a largely evangelical podcast is to sort of make a statement. Um, so would have to kind of maybe make, at least in some circles, for people of color to come and speak to largely white audiences is to make a statement. Um, and so there is kind of an inherent risk and kind of potential fight involved. I don't exactly know what kind of and, and that is part of the privilege and part of the the issue. I, I think at you know maybe not such a bad place to start the conversation about yeah, sure definitely. what is going on here. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So so with all of that uh, that preamble and 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 caveats, you know, um, I'm I'm curious to know, hear your thoughts on what exactly it would. Well, maybe let's start and establish, you know, that the church has been complicit with racism, you know, so like in Jabbar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, you know, he demonstrates very thoroughly um, that from the earliest years of people coming to this continent, <laughs> you know, settlers, um, that up until the present day, you know, repeatedly the church as a whole and, and often led by influential pastors or influential uh, theologians, has been complicit with systemic racism. You know, it's been complicit with uh, upholding slavery or just going with the flow of slavery. And then, of course, the abolition movement would seem to be an exception to that, except that, as Tisby points out and others have pointed out, you know, a lot of abolitionists were against slavery in principle, but they still thought they were superior to black people. Um, you know, and so they're, it's more complicated, more messy than it might seem. Um, at certain points in history. And so throughout, you know, in that book, The Color of Compromise, he just tells story after story of the church accommodating racist policies or racism or slavery or Jim Crow or segregation or what have you. Um, you know, even up into the present day in, in the more recent decades, you know, with um, segregation academies, you know, we're going to desegregate the schools. Okay, that's fine. So we're going to start our own private Christian school over here. And guess what? It's going to be segregated. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of evidence to show that the church as a whole has been complicit in racism. Would either of you add anything to that to just establish that point before we go further? Yeah, I would just say, um, you know, if we're, if we're throwing out like recommended reading sort of things, um, Robert Jones's book, White Too Long, is was a really formative one for me. Um, you know, Jones traces, the, the historical record is pretty clear that white Christianity in America 
hasn't just been complacent or or apathetic, uh, and it hasn't even just been complicit, right? But it's been by design, intentionally, the primary institution uh, that has been actively constructing and propagating and maintaining and legitimizing the project of white supremacy and, and, and resisting black equality in this country. And that's true, not just of conservative evangelical Christians, that's been true of mainline Protestants in every denomination. It's true of Catholics. Uh, it's not just true in the South, it's true in the North as well. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is pervasive. It's pervasive in yeah. white Christianity in America. Drew, do you want to add anything? No, no. I... Okay. <laughs> okay. A, a quick Google search of uh, of church leadership, mainline Protestant denominational heads. I mean, you'd see pretty quickly, like maybe what part of the problem is. <laughs> there's no, yeah. there's not, there's lacking representation, lacking. You know, there are black denominations, um, but by and large, the church is still run by old white men um and it seems to really like it that way um <laughs> yeah i think that's that's also a great point that comes out of that um robert jones book is you know i think a lot of people will be on board <laughs> when we say like in in the historical record the white christian church has been uh you know, has, has propagated white supremacy and suppression of black equality. But it's not just that, it's not just back then, right? It's not just in history. Um, you know, the, the second half of that Robert Jones book that I mentioned is about the current social scientific research is also pretty clear, right? That, um, that white Christians hold really warm feelings toward African-Americans, which is great, right? Uh, that, w that they report themselves as holding warm feelings toward African-Americans. But if you ask any, like, and there are any number of studies that can be cited here, but when you ask specific questions about like the symbols of white supremacy or about economic inequality or like disparity in social mobility between whites and people of color, about unequal treatment of people of color in the criminal justice system, then a, a different reality comes to light than people's self-reporting. And in fact, racist attitudes in really high rates is directly and independently linked to white Christianity. Um, you know, this remains true even if you control for things like are you Democrat or Republican, or do you live in the North or the South, or what's your level of education or your you know, socioeconomic status? The fact of the matter is, if you wanted to go, go and recruit for a white supremacist rally, you'd have better luck doing that at a white Christian church than at a bar. That, that's what the data suggests. And that, yeah, and, and that to me is, is, uh, is a real, uh, crisis of the moment uh, for the church. I mean, we had not not long ago this this shooter um, 
in Georgia uh, that was targeting Asian American yeah. uh, employees of these massage parlors. Um, and the news came out uh, that he was a member, had some affiliations, some ties to, uh, I think it was a Southern Baptist church somewhere around there. And everyone immediately nods their head and says, oh, well, that makes sense. You know what I mean? It's like, well, they don't go finding, discovering, like, I'm not saying that because he was a part of that, that's what made him. I'm just saying it is not, they didn't say, oh, he has a Costco membership. That makes <laughs> sense. Everybody who has a Costco membership, like, we see a lot of, like, really racist activity coming out of Costco people. Um, the fact of the matter is that society at large, the news at large, and we can point the finger all the one, all we want, say, that, well, the media is against the church or what. The bottom line is I think it should matter to us that America heard, well, yeah, he had ties to a church, and they all said, yeah, okay, that checks out. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is I mean, I would have felt a lot better if everybody said, well, what does that have to do with anything? I would have felt a lot better hearing that. But yeah. even I, as a white, maybe evangelical, I don't know if I'm still in that camp or not, maybe – progressive Christian, whatever camp I'm in, I heard he was part of a, of a church. And I thought, yeah, well, that, that's been based on my experience of church and church's obsession with guns and church's obsession with white Jesus paintings and all like, yeah, it, it kind of, I see why you might have white supremacist type folks feeling pretty comfortable in these circles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, you know, a lot of a lot of the reaction I saw to that specifically, you know, was about how um, it was like from Andrew Whitehead um, and uh, Samuel Perry, you know, the authors of uh, Taking Back America for God, and they've done a lot of work on Christian nationalism, but also um, sexual attitudes um, among evangelicals. Um, and about pornography and lust and things like that. Um, you know, earlier this year, I read uh, The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Gregoire, um, Rebecca Lindenbach and Joanna Sawatsky. And they, um, and they made a, a really compelling case that um, evangelical culture as a whole has really taught some very unhealthy attitudes about sexuality and sexual relationships. Um, within heterosexual relationships and marriage, you know, like this idea that men are just inherently lustful and it's weird if men, you know, what's weird is if you don't struggle with lust um, and you then have to, the solution then is to just lust after your wife only. Um, and so like the great sex rescue points out the problem with that is you're dehumanizing your wife, right? You're de the problem isn't that you're yeah. lusting, it's that you're dehumanizing people. Um, and the solution isn't to just channel your lust in one way. The solution is to see women as people and as humans. Um, and uh, and so similarly, you know, you layer onto that the Christian nationalism thing and, and the tendency to uh, see the world in those terms and and to racialize things i mean asian uh women have been fetishized and um sexualized and racialized and it all kind of gets bound together i think 
Um, and so, yeah. yeah, to your to your point, it's really revealing that people were like, oh, yeah, that, that's not surprising. You know, that actually makes sense when you understand the rhetoric within this culture about sexuality and about men's lust. And then you layer on top of that, you know, the pro-gun thing and the the uh, you know racial attitudes that can be the racial othering. Right, you know, by if we're fetishizing uh, a particular group, ethnic group or racial group, we're also othering them. We're dehumanizing them. Yeah, it's true. Well, that's always I've seen. I can't speak very much to this, but I do. I, I it's a it's a very new kind of seeded idea for me. But purity culture is always it always has its roots in uh, white male supremacy like that's where purity culture comes to comes from so these things being intimately tied together makes sense Mm -hmm. um yeah 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 you we were talking before the show started about um kristen coves dumay who came on the crisis of faith podcast a couple of months ago um and she really like revealed that i think for drew and me a lot is the way in which purity culture is really tied up in the history of racism and white supremacy in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you go back to the Jim Crow era. I mean, we now, we have just countless stories of, of Emmett Till and, and similar stories where, you know, a black man is accused of assaulting a white woman. And so then all these white men form a mob to defend the white woman's purity. Um, and, you know, eventually, you know, society progresses, the civil rights movement happens. And then that kind of, I, I wouldn't say, I don't know that I, I, I'm not, I don't know enough to say that it transfigured into purity culture directly, but you can see the links there, right? You can see how it's not a huge leap from, we have to defend the sexual purity of, of white women to now we have to tell white women to dress modestly because uh, they'll cause men to stumble. We don't put responsibility on the men. <laughs> you know, we put the responsibility on the women, even girls, young girls entering puberty um, and the problems inherent to that and the objectification inherent to that. Um, you know, Tim Keller um, recently tweeted about sex outside of marriage and how it's dehumanizing. Um, and then got a big pushback and tried to defend that. Um, and I, and I agree, you know, and ideally we would reserve sex for within marriage. Um, but because of like respecting oneself and one's, and I think there are spiritual blessings that come with that. Um, not because it's dehumanizing because when we start talking about things in terms of dehumanizing, I mean, come on, Tim, like nothing has dehumanized women more than purity culture because it reduced them to sexual objects to be, that are either threatening, um, because they're causing men to lust and stumble or they're something to be policed to prevent that. Um, or that's their role in marriage. You know, once we get married, honey, you gotta, you know, uh, be you know it's got to be uh willing and on demand all the time because that's you know what this culture says is the right thing to do and i you know i have this un uh uncontrollable lust that i've got to expend in this way you know and and i mean that's 
it all sounds kind of crazy, except that's exactly what, you know, every man's battle, love and respect, and all these best-selling marriage books, these studies yeah. that we promote in, from the pulpit and in our, our congregations, you know, that's the, the message we send. Um, at least that's the message that I've expo been exposed to a lot and observed a lot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So I, I also wanted to uh, ask you all about, uh, or, you know, I wanted to also ask you about or talk about as an example of the church and racism, uh, the recent controversy over critical race theory. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just a perfect example, isn't it? That you have, you know, six white uh, seminary presidents associated with the Southern Baptist Convention who put out a joint statement condemning this critical race theory, this perspective on how race influences or impacts society and societal structures. I mean, it's just an academic theory. Uh, it's just a way of looking at the world um, no different than, you know, um, maybe looking at uh, looking at the world as a sociologist or a psychologist or what have you. And, uh, and these six white guys, you know, put out this statement condemning it. Um, and their statement itself doesn't really seem to demonstrate much understanding of what it is. You know, it's just saying this is bad, you know. And so kind of, you know, as an illustration of some of what we were talking about earlier, you know, it shows how there's that lack of representation. You know, they didn't even think to say, maybe we should ask some, you know, black pastors in our, in the SBC <laughs> to chime in on this. Um, and then also just this uh, supremacy. It's like, well, we don't like this, so we're gonna, you know, uh, criticize it and try to stomp it, stamp it out right from the get-go. Um, what's your perspective or your, you know, thoughts on on that as an example of, of this? Well, this yeah, I mean, these are my people. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. I think we talked about this last time I was on the Drew and I were on the podcast, yeah. and. Um, You know, yeah. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. There's, <laughs> there, not only are black pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention not involved in this conversation. I mean, it is a conversation among all of the presidents of all the Southern Baptist seminaries. Well, surprise, surprise, those all happen to be white dudes. Like, yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, and then they don't think to ask. Uh, you know, it's it is the problem that we named right here at the beginning of this this talk that like it's just a bunch of white guys with no awareness um that their voice might be monolithic here mm -hmm. um and and there was um you know a real firestorm response to this the a lot of the black members of the southern baptist convention which god knows why there are any black members of the southern, ba southern baptist convention at this point but there are there were uh are are leaving on mass and the the denomination largely doesn't care and honestly I, I don't say that as you know i don't know how far your listenership reaches beyond you i know it's it's this is a podcast made for your congregation um but like my folks are still southern baptists and i talked to them about this i i asked them like when all this news was coming out what do you think about this? How, do you know about? And they had just no, no awareness of it at all. It hadn't oh, it wow. had never come up, which is like 
really interesting, right? That's yeah. also part of the issue that in a in a Southern Baptist church, like this news just never trickled to the pews at all. Nobody's nobody's having a conversation about it. So on the one hand, um, you know that says something really terrible about the the convention. It says the convention's unwilling unwilling to deal um, with this question. But I also want to say, like, I also want to let people off the hook. I I don't want to say like they're everybody in the Southern Baptist Convention is a brazen racist or something because they just don't know. Most I think most people sitting in the pews have no idea that this is happening. It's just not yeah. not on the radar at all. Um, you know, oh. that means that they're not talking about race at church, <laughs> but that also means you know they're not talking about this. Sure. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on that, Joe? As as an I'm sorry, Drew, as an example of kind of the type of active promotion of racist policies yeah. or racist ideas that we were mentioning earlier. Yeah, this is uh, it's it's fairly new to me. I mean, as I understand, this has kind of been going on for a while in the in the SBC in particular. I come from a a smaller denomination that is kind of a, a branch off of that, but I. I don't know. I was just thinking I, I could speak a little to what what Joe was just saying about his parents because I think my parents is a very it's a very similar situation. Like we were part of a of a smaller denomination that I do think has a lot of the same problems at the top, a lot of the same kinds of issues. Maybe not in the news as much. Um, it's not as big, but it's a really similar state. Whenever I talk to my parents about these things. Um, that they basically are like, well, we didn't know that was going on. We don't have any, any clue. And it boils down 100% to the fact that race has never been discussed in their church. It's never come up. They, they don't have that conversation. And it's kind of, you know, it's a privileged position that they don't have to have that conversation. Uh, there's no people of color in their congregation. Um, nor, you know, I'm kind of, why would there be? Uh, they just live as though that is an issue elsewhere uh, that has nothing to do with them, because fortunately, maybe they wouldn't, that's, that's a little rude to say fortunately, but, you know, they don't have to deal with people of color and people of color's problems, because they mostly just aren't interacting. Yeah. It's still segregated. Yeah, I, I would agree with your use of the word fortunately in the in the sense that I think from many people's many white people's point of view, um, I have I we're highly individualistic. Like our culture, American culture is highly individualistic. I think a lot of um, conservative American culture is even more individualistic, perhaps. Um, and so I think from that perspective or that point of view, it's like, fortunately, I don't have to, I have my yeah. problems and I don't have to worry about other people's problems. Right. And, right. and, it, and it's not right. necessarily explicitly or consciously racialized, but it can become racialized when it's like, you know, um, all lives matter. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't want to focus on yeah. Black Lives Matter. I don't want to focus on like that particular group set of problems because we all have problems and we all just need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and deal with our own problems and stop blaming other people. And right. 
Yeah. That'd... Right. Well, it, it came up on our podcast recently. I thought this was like Joe, Joe may, brought this as an example and it has so heavily. Uh, hopefully he didn't say it while I was uh, in the stuck in the hills here for a minute. But um, the, the idea that, I don't know, we think that's okay. We think it's okay to say, well, that's not really our problem to deal with. We'll deal with our problems. They'll deal with their problems, and we'll all work out okay. The example that Joe brought up on the podcast would – or maybe it was me. I don't know. Joe and I – Joe, we're like one voice at this point, right? We just, uh, <laughs> Your minds have melded. <laughs> but it would be <laughs> – if someone during uh, slave-owning times, someone like myself – were born to a plantation and my family owned slaves and we, you know, largely treat slaves a little nicer than everybody else treats their slaves. It would be a really, really ridiculous, like to our ears, it would be a really ridiculous thing for me to take the perspective of saying, well, you know, I mean, it wasn't my idea to have slaves. I didn't, I didn't bring them over here. Like it wasn't my fault. I didn't decide that I should own these people and should build my, my wealth and my empire on the backs of these people while I, you know, put them down in the dirt for generation upon generation upon generation. And I didn't decide to do that. And plus I'm pretty nice to them whenever I interact with them. It starts to become a really ridiculous position to be taking. It starts, we start to recognize it's like, well, Wait a second. No, 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 no. Anybody who was around during the times of slavery who had any voice whatsoever to speak to it and didn't speak to it, well, they did the wrong thing. They, they were on the wrong side. Anybody who was alive in the civil rights movement, and maybe they did think Jim Crow laws were ridiculous. Maybe they did think that people should all use the same restrooms or the same water fountains or whatever, but they didn't do anything. I mean, obviously, they didn't say anything about it. It's like, well, what? we would say, well, those people are on the wrong side of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we are in a, another, another civil rights movement of a, of a sort. We are in another place where, I'm sorry to say it, but the white evangelical church in America is just on the wrong side of history here. Yeah, yeah it's like... A... By, by, by wringing our hands and saying, it's not our problem, we didn't do it. Uh, sure, your life matter, my life matter, all lives matter. Like we're, we are on the wrong side. Yeah. The other, you know, thing that I think is I'm trying to think about how to say this. When you when you look at the history, right, and you find out when you when you allow yourself to admit um, that white Christianity, the white Christian church, has like provided this has been this this institutional space for the the preservation and the transmission of white supremacy. Then you have to think like our theology has also had to develop in such a way that at least made that possible. Mm. Right? Our spirituality had to develop in in such a way that at least made that possible. And so you kind of look back and you go you know, what we like to do as as white Christians is to look back and say, oh, that was so sad back then, right? So, so sad that people did those awful things or whatever. Um, but if you, if you sit with this for a minute, then you start to wonder like, 
okay, well, how does the theology that I hold make this kind of living possible? How does the spirituality that I practice make this kind of living possible? Like, has there ever been something like real Christianity in, in the white church mm-hmm. in America? Uh, and so I think that what we tend to do, we, what we white Christians tend to do, uh, is think of racial justice work as altruistic, right? I'm going to, oh, I empathize with these people of color. They've had it so hard. Let me go help them out. Let me, uh, let me do something good and kind for them. No, we are broken. <laughs> We're the ones who are broken and need, need fixing, need healing, need uh, repentance. Yeah. Uh, this is a white problem. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, you know, Mark, as Martin Luther King Jr. wrote uh, in his famous essay letter from Birmingham jail. Um, he was very disappointed, most disappointed in the white moderate, you know, yeah. the person who was like, yeah, I yep. don't agree with this, but I'm also not really that worried or concerned about changing it. Or, you know, we need to be slower in changing it or more deliberate in changing it. Um, and to your point, Joe, you know, how does our uh, theology, how do our structures uh, contribute to that? I mean, um, you know, you often hear white Christians or white evangelicals uh, really emphasize um, the chapter in Romans where Paul is writing about obeying authorities. Um, and often in the context of, well, you need to, you know, you need to stop protesting, you need to stop, you know, um, doing these things. And and certainly, you know, and, I, and obviously riots come to mind and I don't want to defend riots at all. But again, I'll, I'll quote Martin Luther King Jr., that we need to condemn riots, but we also need to equally condemn the circumstances that give rise to riots, you know, that make people feel like they have no other voice or no other option. Um, and so, you know, so you you have that theology of Romans, you know, we'll uh, submit to authorities, obey authorities, and conveniently that cre- preserves the status quo, right? <laughs> like, you know, stop protesting, stop making so much ruckus, um, and, and let's just have things be ordered and structured and basically stay the same. Um, and so that's, I think, a really good example of how something that seems so good, well, obey authorities, it's right there in the Bible, can be used in an unhealthy way to say to people, you've got to, you know, stop being so vocal. Um, I listened to a podcast, too, with uh, Esau McCauley, the author of uh, well, Reading While Black. Um, I was just going to say that yeah. I was just going to, when you're talking about Romans 13, recommend that book. Yeah. It's excellent. Yeah. Okay. So I haven't read the book. I've just listened to that interview. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you to, to share a little bit of what Esau McCauley says about Romans 13. Oh, no, go ahead. I, I was oh. just going to, I mean, I, I think the whole, um, he, he gives a whole rereading of all the texts, not just Romans 13, but also first timothy and he looks at the gospels and some of the ways that jesus critiques uh the authorities mm-hmm. um i don't have to hand his exact um argument about romans 13 so so go ahead oh, okay sure yeah he um if i remember correctly what he said in this this podcast interview he said you know the, the way i read that and interpret that is paul isn't saying you can't protest he's not saying you have to be silent 
he's saying don't violently overthrow the government. You know, those are two very different things. And yeah. and and uh, and so I thought that was a really good way to reread or reinterpret that in contrast to how it's often interpreted or used. Um, so yeah, which is why. Well, I was just going to say, which yeah, is why uh, white evangelicals everywhere went all over social media right after the coup uh, and posted and, and condemned the riots and the violence. Uh, yeah, condemned the Republican Party for their complicity in it and, mm-hmm. and Donald Trump. And that's why they did that, because yeah. of Romans 13. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd like to segue. I mean, into... I'm assuming they did. I, I'm, I'm assuming. Ah, <laughs> uh, I got, I got gotcha. you. I, I, I did. I figured out the sarcasm now. It took me a minute. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a good point. You know, um, what we react to often says a lot about us, doesn't it? Um, I've been really struck, um, especially more recently, about how we often get so mad about the wrong things. Um, you know, it's it's crazy to me, but, you know, there are so many issues and problems in the world. And yet, you know, we we tend, especially some people or some groups to really focus on pretty minor trivial issues in comparison to the big picture. Um, so what would it look like for the church or the white church to repent of its complicity or active racism and white supremacy? Like what concrete, tangible steps might we take in our congregations as uh, members or from the pulpit or in small groups, et cetera, to try to acknowledge some of the, the issues that we have? Yeah. Um... You know, I, I have something that's going to, I have something almost, almost silly and trivial uh, to say about that, that, uh, but it started as silly and trivial for me and it's becoming more and more of like, yeah, you know what? That is a really big problem. Um, I think our, um, I think our idols and sort of icons of, white Fabio Jesus uh, would be a really good place to start the conversation. Um, I, I think that is, like I said, it, it, it started as something like, it's kind of silly that we have these white Jesus pictures everywhere. It's kind of silly that we have this picture of an American white man on crosses. And like my dad even did that once. My dad was like in the newspaper with a picture of him on a cross. My dad's a white guy. Um, it's uh, it's a really great picture that I can never really share or do anything that I would love to do with it. Um, it's from, the screensaver but, on my computer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Joe does have it, so I guess at some point it could leak. It could leak. Um, but I think there is something to the idea that, um, I don't, that there's a massive, massive solution, or at least, at least a you know, force us to reconcile with some things written into the fact, like at some point somebody decided, okay, we got to get this, this Brown guy out of the the central, like he can't be the central image of this whole thing. He needs to be white uh, with, with Brown hair and blue eyes. Like we, and that is one of the things that like just shows how deep the roots go. But I think, 
I think it would be a pretty simple place for a whole bunch of pastors everywhere to just say, you know what, these pictures of Jesus are pretty silly. Uh, you know, you know, he was the brown man crucified by the state. You know, he was he was executed by his government uh, as a person of color, oppressed, poor, all of the <laughs> all of the parts of society that we kind of aren't largely. Yeah, I, I, but like I said, that's my my silly little less academic and less scholarly thing. But I think it's pretty tangible uh, to just what, can we talk about why Jesus is white? <laughs> I agree. Yeah, yeah I agree. Sure. That would go a long way toward um, de-othering other groups. All right, I want to leave our conversation there for now, and conclude it in a separate episode or part three of this series on racism. The conversation is so important and I don't want it to get short shrift because, you know, people see, oh my gosh, an hour and a half episode. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't have time for that right now. Maybe I'll listen to it one of these days. Um, and so I wanted to keep these episodes a little shorter, a little bit more manageable. Um, and so I hope that uh, that's an effective strategy and I hope that this episode was helpful to you. Um, and uh, that you will tune back in for the next one where we jump right in with Joe's top 10 list for individuals wanting to work toward racial justice and reconciliation, as well as his top seven list. And he cautions, and I want to foreshadow his cautioning, that this isn't something you know we just do in a day um, or do even in a season, but it's really something we commit to over the long haul. Um, and I, in my mind, that means over... The course of one's life. Um, for others, that may mean you know something different, but it's definitely not something that uh, we just check off our list and then we're done. It's an ongoing process. Um, and so I hope that this conversation has helped ease you into uh, being open to going further with that process. I next, start, I hope our next conversation will help you to take actionable, specific steps in that journey. Thank you as always for listening and. I hope to you will tune in to the next one.